0: Welcome back to the Rocky Talk podcast, being hosted today by Varun Swamanathan. I'm honored to be here with Senator Judd Gregg, who served as governor of New Hampshire from 1989 to 1993, and served in the Senate from 1993 to 2011. Senator Gregg chaired the Education Committee, Help Committee, and Budget Committee, and was recently named the Rockefeller Center's 2023 Perkins Bass Visitor. Senator Gregg, thank you for being here. Varun, thank you for having me. Uh, So, just to start off, uh, I was wondering, what do you believe has changed the most about national
1: politics since you
0: left office a little over a decade ago?
1: Well, I think the core change is the fact that uh, both parties have been marginalized in a way primarily because there's been this rise in what I call virulent populism on the left and the right. Right. And the folks who subscribe to this populism do not tolerate dissent, discussion or disagreement. Uh, their view is the view. And this has created a situation where a government which is structured around compromise, uh, when Madison designed our government, he believed very strongly that he had to avoid autocracy, and so he created the separation of power concept, actually it was. Governor Randolph who came up with the idea, but Madison usurped it. And uh, <clears throat> our government is institutionally institutionally requires, if it's to work, that people of different views come together and reach agreement on complex issues. And that's what the separation of power is supposed to do. Well, that's not happening today. It's not happening today because the Congress is locked down in this uh, intense Disagreement, uh, which is basically a populist disagreement. And so almost every issue of any importance, which is taken up in our country, of any substance, which is complex and requires thoughtful discussion. And in order to be resolved in a democracy which is usually divided, it re- involves compromise. And uh, that's not happening. And so government's not functioning. And it's not. F- And and it's not functioning because of the fact that uh, you have this situation where uh, people on the fringe are dominating the discussion.
0: Thank you. So speaking of that kind of compromise, uh, one of your signature legislative achievements was authoring and passing the No Child Left Behind Act. Um, which obviously bolstered education standards and expanded the federal government's reach into education. Um, Could you talk about what it was like in those negotiations between you and Senator Kennedy, and how interest groups and other groups influenced how that process went?
1: Well, this is a classic example of the way the government worked when I was there. Senator Kennedy was the lion of the left, of the liberals. He was the dominant force in America for many years in defining the liberal agenda. He was chairman of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. Uh, I was ranking, or this time I was second in, in seniority on that committee. And George W. Bush came into office as a president who intended to focus on domestic issues. Unfortunately, 9-11 changed all that. But up until 9-11, he was very much focused in that direction. And one of his priorities was to try to improve elementary and secondary education because he, he and I think most Americans recognized our public school system wasn't working very well. As a general statement it worked well for some specifics. but. And so the first thing he did was gather leaders in the House and the Senate for uh, a gathering. It was a small gathering in Texas even before he was sworn in uh, to try to lay the groundwork for reaching an agreement on a major piece of legislation which would hopefully address that issue. And as a result of that, uh, Senator Kennedy and myself, uh, Congressman Boehner, who wasn't speaker at the time but was chairman of the Education Committee in the House, and George Miller, who was the ranking Democrat on that committee who was from Oakland, uh, we met for four or five months uh, every week and negotiated very aggressively uh, what we thought we needed. First, we had hearings, and we got some background on what people were thinking generally. But we went into very specific negotiations. We were joined by Margaret Spellman, who was President Bush's Secretary of Education. But it was every day, every every week, a couple times a week. And it was intense. I mean, we had intense disagreements. But we, the difference, and we reached an agreement, finally, on a fairly significant piece of legislation, very significant at the time. Uh, And the reason we reached agreement was because everyone in that room, all four of the players who were legislators, weren't there to shout. They were there to govern. Uh, We knew that we were going to have to reach compromise in order to govern. Uh, Senator Kennedy, who had the loudest voice in the room, uh, was perfectly willing to govern. Uh, And so we did. And and it took a long time to work out the details. But it ended up being a, a very good bill, in my opinion. Over the years, it got a dissipated because it was such a good bill that both the left and the right hated it. Uh, the left hated the fact that it held teachers accountable and schools accountable, and the right hated the fact that it was a federal uh, bill. Yeah, so, uh, but it was a good law, and that's the way things worked if you were gonna get things done. You had to come together. You know, any issue that's really complex in our society, and most public policy issues are complex if they're of any significance, they do require compromise. Uh, And in the American system, uh, nothing passes unless the the American people feel it's fair. It will not get popular support unless it's deemed fair by the American people. And the American people define fairness as bipartisan. Uh, if you push through a partisan bill, for example, Obamacare, a large percentage of the population is not going to support it simply because it was partisan. Uh, but you push through a bill that has both sides on it and agrees to it, and it, even though it, everybody didn't get everything they want, and it it's seen as bipartisan, and people accept it.
0: So the conversation around education has shifted a lot since No Child Left Behind. Um, Today, there's a lot of language around censorship and parental rights. Uh, What do you make of this new direction? And where do you believe education policy needs to go now?
1: Well, I think it arises from the same concern, which is you send your kid to school, you expect them to be educated. And there's a real concern that they aren't, that they're being subjected to ideological dogma, uh, and that they're not getting the education they need to be successful in life. education at the elementary and secondary school level should primarily be the responsibility of the local community. And that's one of the things that I insisted on in No Child Left Behind, actually. The No Child Left Behind standards had to be accepted and designed, not accepted, designed by the local community, or in some instances, the state. But it really is the responsibility of the local community to face up to how they educate children uh, within their school systems and whether the school systems are working and some, some of the issues that are being raised today uh, are being laid, raised to a level where the local community is losing control over that. But I think as long as you get back to letting the local community make those calls, uh, you'll probably get a much better educational system.
0: Um, rewinding a bit, I wanted to talk about your early political beginnings. Your father was also governor, and uh, you went to Exeter here in New Hampshire before going to Columbia. So can you talk about some of the early influences that uh, shaped your worldview and your
1: politics later? Well, yeah, I guess so. Well, my father and my mother were a huge influence. My father especially, he was, he was a really decent individual who was very politically active in the state. He really was, for all intents and purposes, is the father of the New Hampshire primary, presidential primary. Uh, but he also always was tolerant of his opponents. I, I learned that early from him. You, you know, the person who you don't get along with today is the person whose vote you'll need tomorrow. But more than that, when I ran for office, I was fairly proud of the fact that every opponent I ever had, when I ran for major office and I ran nine times and was fortunate enough to win, ended up being a reasonably good acquaintance and sometimes quite, quite a good friend. In fact, a couple of them I got jobs for. Um, and that was something he he was very decency was very high on his list. Uh I think the biggest influence really was probably the way I was raised. I was raised on a in the country uh side. I went to small schools and had good friends and uh had New Hampshire values very early of working doing your, doing the right thing which is taught to you.
0: Sticking with New Hampshire for a second. What was your reaction to uh, Governor Sununa declining to run for another term?
1: Well, Governor Sununu has been an exceptional governor. We've really been had some good governors in this state. <laughs> I like to think <laughs> myself in this. But, I mean, before him, John Lynch was an excellent governor. Uh, so he, he's done a fabulous job. He's had good fortune. I give him that. His revenues went way up because the federal government dumped so much money on him that his issue wasn't revenues. And when you're a governor, your biggest issue is revenues. He didn't have that issue, but he's handled it very well. He handled the COVID crisis extremely well, I thought. And he's, he's likable. Even though he's partisan, he's likable partisan. And he doesn't poke people in the eye. He just simply says what he says, and he's often with a good sense of humor. Um, so I think he's been an excellent. I can understand why he didn't run. I mean, he's been there eight years. His family's young. Uh, He's not extraordinarily wealthy. His brother and father are extraordinarily wealthy, but he's not. And uh, he probably needs to go out and make a little money to make sure he can pay for college for his kids. And I I don't hold that against him at all. I wish he'd run for the Senate because that would have been a slam dunk. But we've got really good candidates right now on the Republican side for the Senate, so I think we'll nominate somebody who's gonna, I mean, I apologize, in the House. We've got good candidates running for the governorship, but he, to replace him. So I, I wish he, but I wish he'd run for the Senate. Uh, two years ago, and he didn't. Yeah,
0: no, that, that was a tough race with Maggie Hassan. Um, it was fun to be on campus for that one. Yeah, um, well, her
1: opponent was an idiot. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, he was a very successful military man, and I shouldn't call him an idiot. But he was just so over the top on so many issues, he was not electable in New Hampshire. Yeah.
0: And so on one side you have a young governor, Governor Sununu, stepping down, and then if you look at the Senate, you've got a lot of older politicians still declining to step down, namely Diane Senator Diane Feinstein and Senator McConnell's also been in the news. Um how about the president? And the p- and the president as well, absolutely. So there, um So how do you react to these older politicians who are staying in the Senate or in the presidency in these positions of extreme power? Well, I don't
1: think anybody who's 82 years old should be president of the United States. I mean, he'd be 86 by the end of his term. I mean, I served 18 years with Joe Biden. I liked him. He was an associate who I did a lot of things with, and he was a very good senator. He had a real fastball. Today he doesn't have a fastball. Uh, And he really shouldn't run. In my opinion. Uh, I feel the same way about Donald Trump, but for different reasons. But in any event, uh, I, uh, Diane, I, I was elected with Diane. She's been there too long. She's obviously not physically up to the job. Uh, she's not running for re She probably should step down before then, but she's not going to. Uh, I know Mitch well enough to know that Yeah, he had a couple of instances, but he's still extremely sharp, very capable, totally capable of doing the leadership job. Uh, I don't think he falls into the same category as Diane at all, doesn't even come close. Uh, And so I have no problem with him remaining leader. Thank you. Uh,
0: A hot topic on college campuses right now is academic liberty and freedom of speech. Um, What's your take on the issue, and do you believe that Dartmouth is doing enough to promote uh, free speech in its classrooms
1: well, it is a big issue because you know there 's an argument that can be made that uh a lot of our elite schools are pushing diversity in everything but thought uh, and so it 's important you have voices on campus that uh, don 't basically mimic the uh, agenda of the elite left and um, So I give Dartmouth credit for bringing me around. (laughs) I'm certainly not going to mimic that voice. But uh, I think that's critical. And I think it's good that colleges are facing up to the fact that for too long they've been too dominated by one ideological view, which has, in many instances, made it hard for students to even disagree with it.
0: And finally, your talk today is entitled, Is the Senate Broken? Without giving away the answer to that question, what do you hope Dartmouth students will take away?
1: Well, I think I touched on it a little bit. Uh, I, I, the whole system is uh, under stress today because of this. Everybody going to their corner. There's virulent populism, which is forced off the playing field. The, radic- the rational and thoughtful people who are needed in order to govern, and um, we need to bring them back onto the playing field. And my view is the only way you accomplish that is through leadership. Individuals. One thing I, after 32 years in government, the one thing I. Well, there are not a lot of things I clearly concluded, but one of them was leaders make the difference. People, individuals, It's not there's not some invisible hand out there. Government doesn't move because of some invisible hand. It moves well when it has really good leaders. It moves poorly when it doesn't have good leadership. And so we need some individuals right now in this country that are willing to stand up to this, this anger on the left and the right and this ideological intolerance on the left and the right. And they're willing to say, hey, that's not the way our system was designed. Madison didn't think about it that way. And it's worked for many years because of the Madisonian approach, and we need to get back to it.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at Rockefeller.Dartmouth.edu.